Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I'm reading from John 12, beginning at verse 20, 22. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? It's better a decorative statement. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Jesus now is closing his public ministry. He'll do final words at the end of this chapter to tell you why men would rather go to hell than believe in him. It's a sad ending to the public ministry of Christ. Instead of thousands flocking to him, thousands went away from him, and only a few would remain. How can the Son of God be such a flop? Well, we'll look at that next week and see why the results seem to be minimal. But as Christ enters into now the shadows of the cross, there's three things I want us to look at. Number one, the time for the sacrifice has come. The time for the sacrifice has come. Number two, 
his sorrows will begin in a way that he has not experienced except at the grave of Lazarus uh, when he felt grief for his friend's death. And then finally, we will see three things that he plans to subdue in his death, and we will briefly look at that. I, I think of Christ coming into these shadows and in these uh, dark moments, and uh, I thought of Winston Churchill when uh, Hitler was bombing London day and night, and historic landmarks were going up in flames, and the uh, English people were living in bunkers, basements, subways. We used to have a woman named Bobby Hawk that attended this church years ago who lived through those horrendous days and used to tell us what it was like, life in the subways. But the little British bulldog went to the air, and this is a speech he made during those days, and he said this, Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fell, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science, science that can make bombs to eliminate the race. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth lasts for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Sometimes the finest hour we ever serve is when the sorrows of life, the shadows of death, and the pain of warfare come upon us. When we are going through something, Spurgeon himself said, he went through great seasons of depression every time just before God was raising the curtain on a new aspect of his life and ministry. So we see the Son of God. He says, my hour has come. All the way through this gospel, he said, my hour hasn't come. My hour hasn't come. And now that hour that encompasses Gethsemane, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that whole period of history, he says, now I'm entering into that period. It, it is taking place. And so he begins to tell them why the hour. And the reason for the hour, verse 23, is that I might be glorified. Now, that seems strange. When you tell me I'm going to be glorified, I think I'm going to get a bonus. I want to get a new title. I want to get a promotion. That's glorification for me. But throughout John's gospel, the glory of Christ begins at the cross. And this word will be used of the cross. It will be used of his resurrection. It will be used of his exaltation. But he's saying, I'm now going to fulfill what I came to do. The glory of God 
and the honor of the Son will begin at the cross. Did you know you would never be saved by any of the sermons of Jesus? Believe them all. They won't save you if there's no cross. Quote the Sermon on the Mount to you blue in the face. It won't save you. You can't get saved without the cross. Somebody must die. Somebody must bleed. You won't get to heaven cheaply. It costs you nothing. It costs him everything. Just because it's free to you, don't think it's free. And so he says, my hour has come. The hour my father will choose to glorify me. And then he gives an illustration of what this is about. That we must die to live. We must die to have a crop. We must die to have any effect. And then he applies it to us. Let's see the illustration. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We, we all understand that, don't we? The seed in the bag never produces a crop. You can keep the seed in the bag until it wilts, until the seed is no good. The seed must be sown. But wait, that's easy for me to say because I'm not a seed. For a seed to be sown, I put it down usually at least 18 inches probably, maybe a foot. That's why they plow so much. I'll be buried with weight a thousand times more than the wheat weighs or the kernel of corn. I've got to be buried. I've got to germinate. I've got to come to the end of myself. They have found kernels of corn that were buried with the pharaohs in the pyramids believed to be there 2,500 to 3,000 years. They took the kernels, planted them, watered them, and guess what? They germinated and they bore fruit. Two things in the chapter. If you keep them in their container, will never have an impact. You never can spread the aroma of how wonderful Christ is keeping all your ointment in your bottle. Keep it all locked up. Keep a lid on it. Don't ever be broken. We used to sing a Keith, not a Keith Green, but a Steve Green song, Broken and Poured Out. You can have no fragrance for Christ until you're broken, until you're poured out. If you're in your container of your own little empire, you will die, but you'll have no fruit. Jesus says, men, I'm just a kernel of wheat to be buried. I know I must die to get the crop that I want, for I want a multitude of sinners to join me in heaven. And the hour I'm entering into says, the kernel must be buried. It must die. Then he says something radical. He applies this teaching to his disciples. Look what he says. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. 
Wow, what's he saying? If you love your life so much, you're not willing to die to yourself and die for the cause of Christ. He said, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. You can get all your selfish ambitions met. You can live for yourself. You can do everything for you. I am not expendable. I will not be spent. I will not die to my ambition, to what I am. He's not talking about cutting your wrist. He's not talking about suicidal thoughts. It's a metaphorical comparison, love-hate. Jesus said one time, unless you hate mother and father and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Well, it was a comparative love-hate. For it's the same God who said you must honor mother and father. But he said, you must so love me in a category that's so far beyond all human categories that it's likened to love, hate. Uh, Paul told Timothy in the last days, men would love money, love pleasure, and love themselves. The great competitors to loving God. I've got time for money. I've got time for myself. I've got time for pleasure. I just don't have any time for Jesus. I'm not willing to die. I'm living for me, my I. Jesus said, unless you're willing to die to your own interests and become willing to divest yourself and die for the sake of Christ. By the way, every man in this room but one died for the sake of Christ. Judas died committed suicide because he sold out Christ. John, the writer of this book, died of old age, but they tried to boil him alive on the Isle of Patmos, but the oil refused to boil. That's what church tradition says. But everyone in this room is going to die. You're going to die. The issue will be, did you die for yourself in the bag, or did you die in the soil? What is this death? How will it look? Notice the application. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow me what? In doing the Sermon on the Mount? Follow me to the cross. Follow me in the willingness to lay down his life. Follow me as the example that we're not living for this world, but we're living for another world. And where I am, there my servant will be also. A good way to find Jesus is find some people serving Jesus. Wherever the service going on for Jesus, Jesus is there. Where he's not being served, he's not present. He's not being adored. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That is astounding to me, that the Father will honor anybody that's willing to be poured out to be the seed, just like their Savior, willing to follow him where? Follow him to get rich? Follow him to be popular? Follow, follow him and willing to give up himself for a greater crop? A greater crop. The souls of men. So he says the time for the seed to die has come. 
Now he says a second thing. The time for my sorrow, intense sorrow, has begun. And so he starts sharing the agony he's feeling. That the cross was not without agony to him. It was not, as we would say, a cakewalk. Uh, God did not give Jesus ether in his last days so he wouldn't feel it. Oh, no. He's totally aware a thousand times more than you and I. And he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? And this, the NIV did not do right, nor the New American here. It ought to be a straight line, not a question. Father, save me from this hour. I'm troubled. I don't know what to say, but save me from this hour. You see, in the book of John, he never mentions Gethsemane. He never mentions Mark 14. He never mentions the wrestling in Luke. He never mentions Matthew's account. All three of the synoptists say he agonized in the garden. And in the garden, he said, I want this cup and this hour to pass from me. Take it away from me. He didn't say that for theatrics. His humanity was seeing the cross, not only the spikes, not only the crown of thorns, but the abandonment of God. When God deals with your sin, he said, I am going in great agitation and trouble in my soul. The cross will break my heart. It's not the physical execution alone. Could you imagine being a soldier fighting World War II? I can't imagine just before you hit the beaches of Normandy, you got a letter from your wife that says, I'm filing for divorce for I'm going to marry your best friend. Christ is not only facing the bullets of hell, he will face the broken fellowship of the Father and already the shadows of the cross are falling over his humanity. And he's in great agitation. He's in great turmoil. The word means uh, convulsive, nearly shock of spirit. I, I am in shock of what I'm beginning to feel. The rejection, the trials are ahead of me. The cross is ahead of me. I know for the seed to die... It is causing me great agony of soul. And he said, save me from this hour. And he catches himself. But this is the very hour for which you sent me. My humanity wants to get out of it. Who wouldn't? But this is what you ordained. And so like in the garden, Father, I don't want to drink the cup. I don't like your will right now. My humanity is revulsed by it. Nevertheless, 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 thy will be done. I will drink it, and he did drink it. Morris said it was the combination of the horror of death and the ardor of obedience that are fused together. I am in agony at what's in the cup, but I am determined to obey God no matter what's in the cup. I love what Spurgeon said. 
though it's a painful statement. He said, if I had not known that the cup of afflictions for which I was told to drink did not come from nail-pierced hands, I could barely drink from the cup. Who fills your cup with your sorrows, believer? Who brings the disappointments, the pains, the sorrows, the aches in our lives? Even in the will of God, you can have great sorrows, great pains. But I I used to love to read Adoniram Judson, J. Hudson Taylor, but I must say when I first started reading those biographies, I was depressed at all the women that were buried and all the children that were buried before he had 10 converts. And I thought, God, does my wife have to die to have an impact? Do I have to bury a couple of children to be used of you? That seems, couldn't you have exempted these men? David Livingston, 29 attacks of African fever, which was malaria. Twice was he attacked by lions. His left arm was forever shattered. Come on. How about some immunity, God? I'm doing your will. The will of God must never have any sorrow. Are you kidding? Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. For this whole, whole thing called Christianity was built upon a bloody man upon a tree outside of Jerusalem. Who in the world are the disciples to say, I don't want any? He said, if I suffered, you will suffer. But if you don't, you'll die in your bag full of seed, and you'll have no crop. Stay self-contained. Stay in the jar perfume, and it will never change the atmosphere. Some of you are a bunch of self protected containers afraid to be broken and poured out. And our generation is sick of the church that has lost its aroma. It's because we can't get Christ out of the bottle. It's for instance, these plays this weekend, singing. Some of you won't plan to invite anybody. You won't make an effort. You won't. You just say, it better be good, even if you make it. It better be good. Come on, you already heard it a hundred times. Why don't you bring someone that's never heard it? Well, you don't think they're worth it, do you? Because we seldom have the heart of Jesus. We're all self-contained. Well, a voice comes out of heaven and uh, speaks, and the people don't, hear the words, they hear it, and Jesus says, glorify your name, Father. And he says, I have already glorified it, and I will glorify it. And I think he's saying, I got glory in your ministry, son, and I want to get more glory when you go to the cross. So I've been getting glory out of you. I'll get more at the cross. But then he says, there's three things I plan to accomplish at the cross, three things. And he says, verse 31, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. 
He said, three things will happen in my crossword. Many more things were accomplished, but he wants us to know these three things. Number one, the world will be judged by the cross. Christ said in John 3, I did not come to judge you. Uh, I, I, that's not my ministry. He'll say it in the rest of chapter 12. I didn't come to judge, but I came to save. It's this way. You send your boy with a message to your disgruntled neighbor. Let's quit this squabbling. And to just stretch the illustration, your neighbor kills your boy. I think the answer is self-evident. I'm not interested. God sends the son. Son, offer him salvation. Tell him you're the Messiah. You're the shepherd. And when we send him back to heaven with five wounds in his body, we gave the answer to God, your best isn't good enough. If that's the best you can do, we're going to treat him like a dirty dog outside the city walls of Jerusalem. We'll crucify him next to the city dump. That's what we think about your best. Every man will go to hell just for the cross. Nothing else. You are going to hell because of the cross. If you reject that love and reject that gift, you will spend eternal damnation in eternity away from God. If God's best wasn't good enough for you, you've been judged. And some of you are here today, you'd rather go to hell than to come to Jesus. And you will go to hell. Because God has nothing better to offer. He's put his offer out, his final offer. I brought Jesus to die in your place. And he's already in agony at the price he will pay, and for you to dare say he's not good enough. And they will say that in chapter 12. We don't want him. We don't want him. Israel has been saying it for 2,000 years, and the nations have joined. What's amazing in the story, one group of people emerge that want to see him in the context. While the Jewish nation is hunting him down to kill him, the Greeks come and say, we want to see you. And the way the gospel developed, while the Jews slammed the door in the face of God, guess what he did? He heard a bunch of Gentiles saying, we've been dogs. We've been without covenant. We've been staggering in darkness for centuries. Give him to us. We'll take what they don't want. And guess what? He has saved millions of Gentiles for these last 2,000 years because his son will not die in vain. Second thing he accomplished at the cross, he cast Satan out. He undid him in some way so that the cross did several things to Satan. Hebrews 2 said it destroyed his power to instill fear in the children of God when it comes time to die. He destroyed his power in that arena. He also stripped him. He knows this. He's been sentenced at the cross, and the full execution will be executed in Revelation 20 when he's incarcerated in the lake of fire forever. But he's still out on bail. He's still operating. But it's interesting in Revelation 12, when the dragon that's in the heavens is cast down to the earth, which is Satan, and he begins to persecute 
those that are believers in that time, and especially the nation of Israel, as he's persecuting them, killing them, and tracking them down, there's an interesting thing it says in chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. They overcame the dragon on account of the blood of the Lamb. You can overcome the power of hell through the cross of Christ. There's no one here so demonized. No one here has had so many demons in your body or in your marriage or in your life that the cross does not break its power. For Christ at the cross broke the back of Satan, and there is no power greater than the blood of the slain Lamb of God. He sets free every kind of sinner. Oh, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. We used to sing a song, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. That is so much um, witchcraft if you don't know what blood stands for. The blood stands for the shed blood of Christ on the cross for our sins. And he said to the woman, when paradise was stripped from the first couple, when pain and death were coming to them, and when they're going to bury a boy in Genesis 4, God snuck in the garden and said, come here, Eve, come here. I'm going to give you a boy. And when he comes, he is going to put his foot on the head of the serpent, and he's going to grind his head. The serpent will bite his heel, but he will grind him under his foot. There's one coming. Sojourner Truth went to a convention where she wasn't allowed to speak because she was black, and she was outspoken abolitionist, and they wouldn't let her speak. And finally, somewhere there's a break in the, the time, and she got up, and you weren't allowed to speak. Women didn't even have the vote. She finally got the floor. Sojourner was about 6'2". She was a tall woman, strong, thin, from hard work. She got up and said, I know I'm just a woman. I know I don't get to vote. I know that I'm black. But when God wanted to do something for the race, he didn't even use a man. He used a woman. He didn't say the seed of a man would crush the serpent's head. He said the seed of the woman. Oh, you women ought to be shouting. <laughs> she said, if, if my body and if my species and my gender was used by God to bring Messiah to crush the serpent, that's good enough for me. Joseph, I don't need your help. I don't need your seed. I know how to make seed. I'm going to borrow her female egg to bring the humanity of Messiah to the world. And he did it. He stripped Satan. Third thing he did, he paid for the sin that would draw all men to him. Because he said, I came to get a harvest. And to get a harvest, I've got to die for the sins of all that will be in my crop. And so he said, I must be lifted up, and I will draw all men. Men from every kindred, tribe, and tongue will be drawn to my cross work. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Satan, you're defeated. Sin, you've been paid for, for he was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, and God cursed him 
to make me a part of his crop. Everybody that's going to be in his flock and in his home for eternity, he paid and bought when he was lifted up on the cross. Satan was dealt his blow. The world was judged, and my sins were judged so that I have become attracted to a lifted up, crucified, buried, risen, coming again Savior. That's who I'm following. I want to ask you, all of that is glorious. How are you doing in following him? Are you following him very well? Or do you just want heaven? You don't want him. A lot of people just want heaven. You know, don't ask anybody, do you want to go to heaven? They'd have to be out of their head to say no. But that doesn't mean they want Jesus. Are you willing to follow him? I give two examples. Some of you are still in that container, and you're still that seed that's never been buried. And we look around you, we see no service, and we see no crop. We look around you, there's no aroma of Christ, because you're still in, you're safe. Spurgeon said, where did the Bible say we're to land in heaven as well-preserved sacrifices? He said, I thought we were to land there divested of everything that we gave her all. Our family loved, to, loved a, a black preacher named Brown. My dad used to tell this story with tears that uh, Brother Brown was, uh, grew up in the South, called to preach. Oh, this is probably 30s, could be earlier. But times were hard, depressions going on. Dust Bowl is happening up in Kansas and Amarillo. And uh, when Brother Brown said he got saved, he said, I was saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and called to preach the same night. So he got it all at once. And, uh, uh, and he knew times were hard, and he, he felt God wanted him to go out and start preaching, and he told Sister Brown, uh, you stay home with your people, and I'll send you what offerings I get because it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I don't want you out there suffering, and I don't know what's ahead. Sister Brown, with tears running down her face, looked at him. She said, do you think Jesus would care if I suffered too? Would Jesus care if I suffered alongside of you? I'm not afraid to suffer for Jesus. I don't need the comfort of my parents' home. If you're going to have a hard time of it preaching Christ, I join. I, I want to suffer too. Would you be willing to suffer any inconvenience to reach this hell-destined generation that we're planted in the middle of? Some of you, oh, uh, it's over for America. Obama went back in. Shame on you. But you weren't appointed to place men into power. You were appointed to pray for whoever he puts in power. I thought God set up kings and brought them down. I thought we had a few Calvinists that believed in sovereignty. Oh, he's the Antichrist. So what? Pray for him. God picked him. You didn't. I see him. Will you witness? Well, I don't know about that. I think uh, a moving story my brother wrote. Uh, 
A sister did a biography, background on her family, and my brother Paul wrote a moving story that my, sister, my, my wife and I, she often, we read it, and, and we've never got through it without weeping, especially Carolyn, because she loves to reach children for, the, for Christ. Paul tells his story. Uh, I won't get exactly. You talk to him. He's the author. That's where I got it. In the 30s, my dad was working on the Friant Dam, just right out of Fresno. Uh, what lake is there? Millerton Lake is behind that dam. And uh, he was a dynamite monkey. Paul tells me those cuts in the side there were 300 feet high. They put a rope around him, put him over this cliff, and you take uh, a drill, drill these dynamite holes, put your powder in, set the charges, then you go and do another one. And I know I've seen family pictures because in that key it would get so hot, there was no breeze, that he took uh, salt tablets all the time. And so we have pictures of him, salt caked all over his body from just putting the water through his system, so much sweating. During that time, my dad made $36 a week, Paul tells me, maybe a little bit less than a dollar an hour. But he taught a boy's class, and in that boy's class, he said, I'll give $5 to any boy that memorizes Psalms 23. And the boys were pretty excited. Now, you imagine, $5, it would take my dad five days at about 10 hours a day to make five bucks. Because Paul said he got paid less than a dollar an hour. Okay, but he said, you gotta, you got to quote it perfectly. So, first week, the boy gets up. The other boys are kind of, you know, tickled because they don't even try. This boy tries first week. He blows it because he, he stumbled. He does it week after week until finally, third or fourth week, boom. He quoted it exact, all six verses. My father pulled out that five he had tucked away in the wallet and gave it to the boy and said, son, you did a great job. Wonderful. Now, this is about 1936. Uh, and my folks were living in a squatter hut. They had no shower. They bathed in the San Joaquin River. They were just squatters. They didn't even own the property. They just built the place. Well, time goes on. About 1946, uh, a knock comes at our door in Richmond, California, in the uh, war housing projects. And... This knock comes to the door. Paul goes to the door, says he's around 12, right in there. And he goes to the door, and you've got a guy standing there in full uniform. And he says, is there a Mr. Howard here? Paul said, there sure is. And he goes and he gets my dad. My dad comes, not aware of who this is. And the man said, are, are you Lawrence Howard, Mr. Howard? Did you work in Tryon? Were you, were you the man that taught? Yes, yes. I, I'm, the boy gave his name. They got reacquainted. He said, I just wanted to come by, Mr. Howard, and see you and tell you something. He said, you know, I fought at Normandy. I saw my boyfriends decapitated. Uh, I, I laid on a wet beach and had bullets going over my head three inches away, all day, all night, soaking wet. 
And Mr. Howard, the only thing that comforted my heart when all the bullets were flying was what I memorized as a boy in your Sunday school class. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, the $5 bill would have never done anything for the kingdom of God in his wallet. But it made a big difference in a boy on the beaches of Normandy that had nowhere to find comfort, but somebody made an investment. Somebody got out of the bag. Somebody said, I got to die to my small ambitions. I've got to die in order to make men live. And the reason we're lousy evangelists and the reason we have minimal impact and we can grow old together as a church and not abound in young marriage, young people, and new converts, ignorant, dumb, dirty, because we stuff the seed in the bag because it's too costly to die to our ambitions. I'm always moved. We used to sing a song, where he leads, I will follow. Where he leads, I will follow. Follow all the way. I'll go with him through the garden. Oh, my. Who went with him through the garden? They went to sleep. Judas forsook him. The disciples fled by the time the soldiers came. When I was trying to sing that song this week, I couldn't get through it. I'll go with you through the garden. I'm doing good to serve you in good times. Can't imagine in the shadows of the cross. I think we're in the end times. I don't think we have long. And Jesus said at the end of this, the time for you to redeem is when the light is with you and the light was standing before them and you better come to Christ then. And I want to say to you now, there's light in this room. The gospel's being preached. Christ is being proclaimed. And you've watched God's people worship him. You better come to the light, for it's going to get darker in your life. The light's going out. Because someday God's going to call his church and all the light bearing on the earth. He's going to catch it away. And there's going to be a dark night of tribulation. And you won't find any gospel preaching churches then. It'll be over. He's going to save a bunch of Jews in Israel, 144,000 of them. And they're going to evangelize the world. But you, you've got light now. And whatever you do with this light, you'll either become a son of light by believing or it's going to get darker. One thing hell is not bothered with, and that is light. There will be no light in hell. If you don't choose the light, God will see you will never see light for eternity. When, oh when, will you come to Christ? Or is he not good enough? Your friends look good. That chick you're dating looks good. Sex on the side looks good. Maybe getting high on the weekend looks good. Being popular with your friends looks good. At the judgment of God, God will line up everything you're choosing over Christ 
and he will put the cross, and he said, this is what you chose over my best. You judged because you wanted it, not my crucified son. I'll give it to you and them, and I will turn out the lights for eternity. I don't know how much longer you'll have light. I would run to it as soon as I could, for you may not be alive tomorrow. Our Father, it's terrible to see the lame excuses of people for why they will not come to Christ. Sin, money, sex, drugs, a million other competitors look better, but none of them would die for us. None of them satisfy ultimately. While there's light, while the gospel is shining, would you command the darkness that covers their heart and the blindness that covers their eyes to be removed that they could see the glory, the glory, the glory that's in the face of Jesus. Oh, come to a glorious Christ. He's died once for all. He lives forever. And we will never have an impact until we're willing to die to ourself and say our lives are to be expended in service to him. Help us to get over being frozen in the pew and to get engaged for Christ before the light goes out. In Christ's name I pray, amen.